0: Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer before we come to the Word? You join me, let's pray together. So Father, we are grateful. As has just been sung, we're grateful for your amazing, precious grace toward us. How beautifully put this morning, reminding us of the tremendous cost of our salvation. What marvelous love that you have for us. I pray that even this morning as we come to your word and we, we study that that might be made even more real to us. That we might then in turn love you more deeply and fully. That we might love you as the scripture calls us with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. So that purpose, Lord, help us as we come to your word to, to uh, have minds that understand and hearts that are receptive, spiritual eyes to see what you have for us this morning. So Father, we commit ourselves to you and ask your grace upon us. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. I invite you to take your Bibles out this morning and open to the book of Jeremiah. I think that it, as always, helps to have the Word open before you where you can see, therefore yourself, what the Lord says. We just have uh really one more week left in this marvelous book of Jeremiah, uh, today and next Sunday in, for our study this summer in this, what I hope for you, has been a marvelous study. I have in, thoroughly enjoyed our time in this book. We're going to be this morning in the, in chapter 30 through 33, of Jeremiah, which normally would be a problem. We're gonna, we're gonna rush through this. But I, I know that as I look around, and probably you see the same thing, as I look around in the last few weeks, I see that there are a lot of people who are struggling with stress and discouragement and depression. And it's kind of understandable. You look at the you know, fact that COVID is still here. It's been a year and a half. And uh, we were supposed to be past all this. And here it is. And, and all the news, of course, is that it's resurging. And it's depressing. Besides that, of course, all the information that's out there is conflicting. Or much of it is conflicting. And there are very strong opinions about this and about that. And it just makes it all more discouraging. We're tired. If that's not enough, the news about the economy is discouraging. Uh, we see fears of inflation. We see government racking up massive debt. That's depressing. There's wildfires out west. There's hurricanes out east. That's depressing. Almost everything is politicized and is politically polarized. That makes everything more depressing. And then internationally, and especially we've seen in the recent weeks, that's depressing. The mess in Afghanistan, other world situations. Could you use a little good news this morning? Some encouraging words? Well, it's before us here. Jeremiah chapter 30 to 34. When God called Jeremiah to be a prophet, Back in chapter 1, God described what His ministry would be like this. He said, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. And for the last, 10 weeks or so as we've been going through the book and looking at messages from this book, we've seen a lot of plucking up and breaking down. We've seen a lot of destroying and overthrowing. That whole building and planting part has been rather absent. But as well, the people have refused to listen to God. They have refused to turn from their sin and the message has been destruction is coming. Today, as we come here to chapters 30 to 33, we finally, finally get to the last part of that job description. Where God says in chapter 31 to Jeremiah, God says, and it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them, Israel, to pluck up and break down, to overthrow and destroy, and to bring harm, so I will watch over them, here it is, to build and to plant, declares the Lord. These four chapters, some have called in this book, they call this the book of consolation within the book of Jeremiah. For it is here in the midst of the sea of judgment, in the sea of plucking up and breaking down, that we find this message of building and planting, a message of consolation, a message of comfort, a message of hope. As these chapters are penned, it is a very dark time. We are on the timeline of things. If you recall, we have The southern kingdom of Judah here, we had King Josiah, we've worked our way, we're on the last king, King Zedekiah. Jeremiah has been ministering for 39 years. We are right in the last months, weeks, hours maybe of this kingdom of Judah. Even as as these chapters are written, the Babylonian army is surrounded Jerusalem and laying siege to the city. They'd invaded twice before, as you see there on on the chart, but this will be the last time. This time when they break through, of course, some of the folks haven't believed what God has said, but they're going to come through and they're going to destroy everything. And the last of the people will either be killed or taken captive to Babylon. Food is scarce. People are starving. Morale is low. It's indeed the last hours, it's the last gasp of the kingdom of Judah. The final hammer of God's judgment upon Judah is about to fall. Jeremiah, the prophet, is is in prison. He's in custody because he's been labeled a traitor, an enemy of the state. Because he's been preaching the message that God told him, which is, Judah will fall to the Babylonians. And that's a traitorous thing when the official message and the popular message in the news is, it's all fine, we'll be okay. Hang on. Don't lose heart. God has spoken, but the people have little interest in what God says. And it's into these dark days that God speaks. And God is going to speak promises. Verse 1, Jeremiah chapter 30. Hope you have it there in front of you. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. Jeremiah, take what I say and write it down. Because God is speaking, by the way, it makes it abundantly clear, in these four chapters I counted yesterday just out of curiosity because I kept seeing it pop up, 23 times God says, thus says the Lord. 21 times it says, declares the Lord. God is speaking and He's speaking powerfully. But the people have no desire to hear what He has to say. So God doesn't tell Jeremiah, go up to your prison window and yell this out the window. What He says is, write it down. Because while these people have no interest in listening, people to come will. These words are going to later be treasured and valued clung to by people who are looking for hope. People who are looking for Encouragement. We have a good example of one, at least one case in the Bible here of of where that happened with one individual. It was decades after this that one of the Jewish exiles in, in Babylon, an aging man, moving into his old years, is reading from this book, from Jeremiah's writings, and he says this, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet that must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Daniel is reading these words of Jeremiah. He is moved. Deeply moved. We find Daniel says he is moved to prayer. He is moved to confession. He is moved to worship. As he realizes from studying Jeremiah's words that this captivity is to last 70 years. And Daniel realizes it's about time that we get to go home. He found courage and hope. Well, this morning I want to call our attention... As God writes in these four chapters, promises to Israel, I want to just call our attention in the time we have to four promises that God gives to the people of Israel. And perhaps they will give us some encouragement and hope and strength in our own day as well. The first promise that I find in these chapters, actually I could rather than nail it down to one chapter and verse, we're going to find it here in chapter 30, but you can find it all through these chapters. They're filled with promises that God is going to return the Jews to their land and to restore them. Promises of return and restoration. And not just that Judah, the southern kingdom, is going to be returned and restored, but that Israel, the northern kingdom, as well. Israel and Judah, you may recall that it was centuries before this. That goes back to the days of Solomon when Solomon died. That after his death there was a, there was a split between the north and south, a civil split and a civil war that ensued between the, between the people of Israel. They divided into two countries. And they remained two countries until Israel, the northern kingdom, about 200 years before this, was destroyed and taken captive by the Assyrians. And now the southern kingdom, Judah, is about to be taken into captivity. And God says here, the days are coming when I will restore both. Look at verse 3, chapter 30. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people. Here it is, Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. God is going to bring them both back, but He reminds them several times in this chapter. Matter of fact, this chapter, chapter 30, is a kind of back and forth between promises to bring them back and reminders of why you're in this mess in the first place. Why are you here? You're here because of your persistent and sinfulness and your stubborn rebellion. For example, look there in chapter 30, down at verse 11, the second half, where God says, I will discipline you in just measure, and I will be by no means leave you unpunished. Reminds me of some words I had with my kids when my kids were little. They're in trouble, and I will by no means let you go. You know, you, Sorry, there's no skating by this. You will be punished, God says. Down to verse 15. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable because your guilt is great. Because your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. Yes, God says, your troubles are inflicted upon you by Me. But they're inflicted upon you because of what you've done. Your own sinfulness. God says you will suffer but again, all the way through this chapter and these other chapters, the days of restoration and joy are coming. Good days are ahead. For Look at verse 17. For I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord. Because they, those other nations, have called you an outcast. They scoff. It's Zion for whom no one cares. Verse 18, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes and the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city, that's Jerusalem, shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. And out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. And I will multiply them and they will not be few. And I will make them honored and they shall not be small. God is going to restore and bless His people, the people of Israel. And in fact, God does bring them back from Babylon, and He settles them back in the land. In 538 BC, Cyrus issued a decree to send, which allowed the first exiles to return, to leave Babylon and go back to the land of Palestine, the land of Israel. That was, by the way, right at 70 years from when the first captives, Daniel, his friends, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, or we know him as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and others were taken captive. Seventy years later, the first captives go back under decree from Cyrus. It's about 20 years after that, around 516 B.C., that the temple, 70 years after it was destroyed, the temple was completed, rebuilt. 444 B.C., Nehemiah led another return of exiles back to Israel, and the walls around the city of Jerusalem were rebuilt. God brought His people back. And it's a miracle of history. They came back, and they—they they, a nation that was destroyed, a nation carried away into captivity, Three quarters of a century later, they come back. The nation is rebuilt. The people flourish. It doesn't surprise us, or at least it shouldn't surprise us, because God always keeps His promises. There's a second promise that God makes here in this chapter It's a significant promise because what He tells these people, even as this hammer of judgment, the final hammer is about to fall upon them, God reminds them that His goodness toward them is rooted not in their faithfulness, but in His love. Verse 3 of Jeremiah 31. Look there and follow with me. God says, as we move to the next chapter, chapter 31, verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. God assures His people, even as they are entering into this time of judgment, God assures them that He will not fail them. That God's faithfulness towards them is not rooted in their goodness, but in His love. Despite their failures, despite their faithlessness, despite even God's punishment of them, God is faithful to them because He loves them. Even God's discipline, even God's judgment upon them is, is in His love. That's good news to the people of Israel. God will not abandon them despite, as God says later on, despite all that they have done. And by the way, for you and me today as Gentile believers, there's a similar promise for us that we find in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, we read that God has chosen us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In other words, God knew us and loved us and chose us before the world was ever created. God's love for us is an eternal love without beginning or without end. It predates time. So Paul asked the Romans, he says, therefore, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes on to say that for I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I find this truth wonderfully encouraging as a man who constantly fails and constantly falls, that God's love is rooted in an unchanging, unfailing love. His faithfulness To us is not dependent on our faithfulness, but in His eternal love. Isn't that good news? There's a third promise in these chapters that is really a big one. Chapter 31, we find it toward the end of the chapter in verses 31 to 34 that God promises a new covenant. If you've studied the Bible much, you know that as you go through the Old Testament, there are significant events, significant times when God went with His people, made a covenant. Beginning with the Abrahamic covenant, God makes covenants with His people, Israel. There's the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant. And God says, speaks here as He talks about How in the days of Moses, God made a covenant with Israel. We call it, as I mentioned earlier, the Mosaic Covenant, or we sometimes call it the Law of Moses, or simply it's called the Law. And God says here, He promises that one day He is going to replace the Mosaic Covenant, which Israel broke continuously, and He's going to replace it with a new covenant. God says here in verse 31, 34 of chapter 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their forefathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. God says, I'm going to make an, a, a new covenant with Israel and Judah. But it won't be like the old covenant. It won't be like the Mosaic covenant. And this covenant, God says, He's making it. And it's, it's one party. God is making it. It's unconditional. And it's a marvelous covenant. Some marvelous things here. four primary features of this new covenant that God promises. The first feature that He promises of this covenant is that it will bring about an inner transformation in God's people. A new relationship with His law. No longer, instead of the law being, as it were, on the books, written on tablets or written on in the books, the law, He says, is going to be inward. It's going to be in His people, on the hearts. Of his people. God says they will follow him because it's their desire to do so. God says, I will put my law within them, I will write it upon their hearts. Secondly, God says that this new covenant will involve not only an inner transformation of his people, but a a realized relationship with his people. What I mean by that is this, from the beginning, when God first formed the nation of Israel, God called Israel His people, and they called themselves the people of God. While that was what they professed, they constantly failed. They never lived up to that name. They never lived up to the terminology of the relationship. Instead of being God's people, they constantly walked away from Him and they constantly chased after and ran after other gods, idols. But God says with this new covenant, this profession will finally become reality. It will be realized in their practice. God says, not only here in this new covenant, but several times in these four chapters, I will be their God, and they shall be My people. What we always said should be the case finally will be the case. Thirdly, in this new covenant, God says there will be a personal relationship with God. Under this new covenant, every one of God's people will have personal knowledge of God and personal relationship with God. You might recall in the old covenant in the old testament that when God's people those who were under the the law of Moses, those who were in the covenant, the people of Israel that even when they would come to worship God, they would come to the temple and there was the temple and there were areas where you couldn't go and there were there were priests you had to Work through, but you couldn't get to the holiest place. Even the holy place. Only the priest could go there. But God says in the new covenant, every one of His people will know Him personally. No longer will it be, well, let me tell you about God. It's, we will know, they will know Him. He says, all will know them, will know me from the least of them to the greatest. Wonderful news. There's a fourth feature of this new covenant. God says there will be forgiveness of sin. The Mosaic Law had lots of laws, lots of pages to tell us about sin, what sin looked like. It identified what sin was, pointed it out, so it convicted people of their wrongdoing, of their sinful practices. Oh, that's wrong, that's sin. It pointed out sin. It convicted people of sin. And the law provided for some temporary covering of sin through a sacrificial system. But what everyone knew is that the law could not remedy sin. It could not remove it from us. And it could not remove the guilt of sin. It could not provide true forgiveness for sin. But God says with the new covenant, I will forgive their iniquity. Verse 34 And I will remember their sin no more. It was 500 years after God lays out this new covenant that's coming to Jeremiah. It was 500 years later, roughly, that the means for this to bring about the reality of this new covenant happened. It was when Jesus, the Son of God, was sacrificed on the cross of Calvary. Jesus inaugurated this new covenant. It's what Jesus was announcing in the upper room the night before His crucifixion as He ate there with His disciples and they shared the Passover meal. And you recall, after the Passover meal, Jesus takes the cup and He said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. What Jesus was saying is that this cup, which they were about to drink, it had been picturing all along the cup of the Lamb of God that would be realized the very next day as Jesus, the Son of God, dies a bloody death on the cross. And with it, the new covenant is finally initiated. Important thing to notice here. Jesus inaugurated. He began the New Covenant. And the New Testament, as we go through it, it makes it clear that every one of these blessings of the New Covenant that we have seen, we enjoy them as believers. Every believer in Jesus Christ has received forgiveness of their sins. All of our sins. Every believer in Jesus Christ has received And has a personal relationship with God. Every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ are a part of God's people. We're baptized into the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us. We are part of the people of God, 1 Peter 3 tells us. And every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And He has put the law of God in our hearts. And He is in the process of transforming us and changing us from the inside out. All of these things, an inner transformation a realized relationship, all of these blessings are the new covenant. But as we read here in Jeremiah 31... God says, "I will make this covenant with Israel and Judah, the Jews." And as I look around the room here, most of us are not Jews. At least I know most of you. And I don't, from what I gather, most of you aren't Jews. So, how do we explain that? That has been a a problem and a and a struggle for many through the years. And we could argue about it and talk about it and never cover it all, discuss it. The simplest explanation I'm going to give is one I think Paul gives, Romans chapter 11. The Apostle Paul there gives an illustration. And there he uses an illustration of a tree, an olive tree. And Paul says that in this olive tree represents, as we look at the illustration, he represents Israel and God has taken wild olive branches and he that's the term he uses to describe us as gentiles wild olive branches and he has taken them and grafted them into the olive tree that is Israel God's people God's covenant people he's grafted us in by the way olive I don't know what you call them, farmers, ranchers, what is it, a guy that grows olive trees, raises, produces, grows olives, talked to one over in Greece a few years ago, and they still do this in Greece today. They graft wild olive branches into cultivated olive trees. And they do that for lots of reasons, but it really works. So the illustration is taken from reality that these people understood. We don't much but the point is this. He says, some of the natural branches of the olive tree of Israel have been broken off in unbelief. They, when Jesus came, they rejected Christ. They didn't believe Him. By their unbelief, they've been broken off from the tree and wild branches have been grafted in. Now Paul says, his point is, the, the, the grafted in branches haven't replaced the original tree. We enjoy the, the sap, we enjoy the nourishment of the tree. And we produce fruit because of the tree. We enjoy all of these spiritual blessings, you see, of the of the new covenant and of the covenants that God made with Israel. Because we are, as Paul said earlier in in the, the book, he says that we are the spiritual seed, the spiritual descendants of Abraham. But we haven't replaced the physical descendants. The physical blessings still belong to the physical descendants whom Paul says, by the way, aren't done away with. That God, the the guy growing the olive tree, can easily take the original branches and graft them back in. So he says, don't get all puffed up and proud. You grafted in branches. Why has God done this? So, as Paul goes on to say, God has worked it for a reason. Let me just, he says it's going to change one day. Something's going to change. And notice what he says. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God has worked through Israel's unbelief to expand the blessings of salvation to the peoples of the world. But a time is coming when this new covenant will be realized with the people of Israel. They will one day turn and recognize their Savior. They will look upon Him, the old prophet says, whom they have pierced. and They will mourn for Him. They will believe and receive Jesus as their Savior. And Paul goes on to say in Romans 11, and in this way, All Israel will be saved. You see, the promises to Israel in these chapters, in this little section of Jeremiah, are about their return from Babylon and their restoration from the Babylonian captivity. But what you find as you go through, there are promises in these chapters that go past that. As much of prophecy in the Old Testament is. There are near things and there are farther things. And they look to future regatherings and future restoration of Israel. There are many Christians today who don't believe that that Israel has any future in God's plan. That when the Jews rejected Jesus, that God rejected them and He has replaced Israel with the church. And that is... Probably in all, if you take all of Christendom, that is the majority view. But I disagree with that, as do many others. And I disagree with that for many reasons, one of which is the fourth big promise in these chapters for Israel. Again, chapter 31. And this fourth promise that I see here, by the way, is a guaranteed future you are going to just take, actually, there, there are several promises about their future. We're just going to look at two. One of them is in verse, chapter 31. there verses 35 through 36. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. He who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. God says, Israel has a guaranteed future as a people forever. For one thing he says, you can count on. If you, go out, if you went out this morning and happened to notice the sun was shining... And tonight, if you notice that the the moon comes out and the stars come out, if you notice that those things are still there, then you can guarantee there are still descendants of Abraham. There are still descendants of Israel. There are still the Jewish people on the face of the earth. We know lots of folks through the time have tried to exterminate the Jews. God says, no, ain't going to happen. Well, there's more. And among them, among the more promises in these chapters is that God promises that they will have a kingdom from the day that whenever it was, whether it was weeks later or hours later or months later after. Jeremiah writes these prophecies down. At some point, the Babylonian army breached the walls. They invaded. They destroyed. They killed. From that moment until this day, August 22nd, isn't it, 2021, there has not been a Jewish king on the throne in Israel. But, God says there will be. He said in a verse we read earlier in chapter 30 that the palace was going to be rebuilt for the king. He says that their prince, their leader, their king will be one from among them. He will be their own. There will be a Jewish king ruling over the Jewish people. But it hasn't happened yet since this day. Chapter 33, flip over just another chapter. As I said, we were going to do 33. So we're going to do just a couple of verses from there. Chapter 33, verses 35 and 36. In this chapter, by the way, what God does is He reaffirms, He restates and reaffirms the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David that promised That they would, he would never lack a descendant to sit on the throne, who promised that there would be one of his descendants ruling in Jerusalem forever. And so we wonder, since it's never happened, since this time of Jeremiah, has God changed his mind? Or has God failed? Look at what he says in verse 25 of chapter 33. Thus says the Lord, If I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of the heavens and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and have mercy on them God says again if it's still daytime out there and if night still comes if the seasons still happen there will be a day that the offspring of David will rule on a throne over Jewish people it hasn't happened yet but does God keep his word God said, it's sh- you can count on it like you can count on the sun rising tomorrow. It's going to happen. Of course, I believe that happens at the return of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus sets up the kingdom. And all the promises to Israel will come about. Find it Revelation chapter 19 and 20. We've only scratched the surface, but we're out of time. Just a couple of quick takeaways. First, as much as the world around us, and as much as maybe your personal little world, as much as either of those or both of those may be in a huge mess. It's really not a question about the big one out there. (laughs) We're in a huge mess. What this passage reminds us is that the world may be running amuck, but it's not out of control. Your personal world may be running amuck, but it's not out of God's control. God is working His plan. He is sovereign, He is in charge, and in His plan He works out the details, every one of them. Everything God has ever said will happen as He had said. And we know that what will happen in the future will happen because He has done what He promised in the past. And so, we can relax. We don't have to sweat it. God's working His plan. And His plan ultimately is for our good And again, when Jesus Christ comes back, there are great days coming. Amen. Second important takeaway for us from this. And and there are many, but just limit it to what we have time for. Romans chapter 11. As Paul is struggling to explain this relationship of us as Gentiles and Jews and salvation in the big plan of God. And if you struggled in that little brief thing as we went through, as the theologians do, relax. What I appreciate is that Paul, as he is trying to explain this, he just stops and he just says, oh, almost the next words from where we stopped reading are, all oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. We sometimes get ourselves so busy and tied up in knots as we try to unscrew the inscrutable. When we would do best to read it and do as Paul does, just marvel. Wow. Even as the song that Elizabeth sang before the message, how sweet, how sweet is the whole plan of God's salvation, of His love toward us. How absolutely stunning that God cares about these wee little things, you and me, specks on a speck in the universe. And God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Not only that, but these little specks, these little creatures were rebels against God. We spat in His face. And yet God loved us so much that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's enough for us to just marvel at the rest of the day, the rest of the week. Turn that into worship today of our Lord. And let's worship Him not only here in this room, but as we live. And let's worship Him by sharing this good news with the world that needs to hear. There's a God who loves you. Who's given His Son to save you. Trust Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this. This message is we recognize it's several steps above our grade level in understanding. But we, what we see in this is that you are a loving God, you are a faithful God, you are a gracious God. You are a God who does judge sin, but you are a God who is also a God of mercy. Father, in your mercy you have sent your Son. And we are Amazed. May that move us to love You more. To love You with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And may it move us to share the good news of Jesus with a lost world. In His name we pray. Amen.